Welcome to C3 Church Tugra. You're about to hear a great message from one of our guest speakers. Get ready to be inspired to live your best life. Feel free, be seated, and thank you for your welcome, and uh, glad the room is full of love. <laughs> Always makes it easier for the preacher, you know. <laughs> I've, um, I was born again just up the road at YE, Bethshan Holderness Mission, which these days is probably a nursing home and not much more, but back in the 60s and before, it was a real Holderness Mission, and they used to run school holiday camps for kids, and then on long weekends, serious conventions, you know. And uh, as a 15-year-old, because I was in the Salvation Army from my birth, but um, hadn't been converted and didn't know it, I thought I was Christian. I used to pray. I used to give a testimony. (laughs) I believed everything was preached. Sat under the gospel for five serious years before I was born again, all the while thinking I was a Christian. But um, I went to a school holiday camp here in May 1967. Enjoyed it so much. You know, hikes, trips to the beach. I signed up for the very next thing they had thinking it was another holiday weekend, it was a, con- a Bible convention. <laughs> I was locked in, meeting after meeting, and in the last minute of the last meeting, got so profoundly born again. I mean, when I was saved, I was saved. <laughs> you talk about a life being changed. And I, I mean, um, it was interesting. I, c- I still remember, in my seat, uncomfortable, the call of God. I'd sat through the call of God hundreds of times, you know, like, the, like a meeting with an evangelist, strong appeal. Sat through it all. In fact, that weekend there'd been seven or eight of those. Other people getting saved. I'm just sitting there enjoying the meeting. All of a sudden, you know, Spirit of God, you get the, the call hits you. And so I'm shifting in my seat, uncomfortable. You're sitting with your mates. I was in the back row of that place. Didn't want to go forward. But I still remember the moment I yielded, in the split second that I just shifted my weight, because I was about to stand up, that was the second in which I was thoroughly born again. <coughs> I didn't need prayers, didn't need explanations. So you went forward, you received the prayer, taken outside, get all the counsel. I didn't need it, any of it. My, my head and heart were, were in heavenly places. I was, I was in the heavenly Jerusalem. I was seated with Christ on his throne. I knew who I was. You talk about a change of life. And, and as if one change of life is not enough, uh, six or seven years later I discovered there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'd prayed for six or seven years to be full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and um, but I spent five days seeking the Lord, crying out to God by day and half the night. And when the Holy Spirit, Spirit fell on me and clobbered me, I was 22 years of age, just. And again, uh, you talk about you know profound stuff and the liberty that came. Wow. You know the greatest liberty at all that came from the baptism of the Spirit. I, I was seeking tongues, of course, because I'd heard that was all in it. And when the Holy Spirit fell on me, man, that burst. And uh, that thing was huge, but two things came out of it I was not expecting and hadn't thought to pray for. One was I was so taken hold of by love and uh, you, you stood in love, you walked in love, you were held by love and so you, your security was so much more complete. You no longer needed to derive security from another person. I mean, you did. You're, you, I was married. You're in love. You cared about others. You had great relationships, but that 
that sense of being home, of being cherished by the Lord. It's no wonder John Wesley called the baptism of the Spirit perfect love and other similar names. But the other thing that came was authority. I wasn't expecting it, but I, I somehow had this grace for real authority in the spirit realm. I didn't have, even know demons existed. We didn't have them in the Salvation Army. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but um, it, it's not long when you're in ministry and you come up against stuff. And I discovered demons by accident and discovered that just with a little prayer, this thing had come out. So anyway, and, and I went, I moved then from complete ignorance about the spirit realm to, to all this revelation. I mean, the stuff I've written in books, this is only a part, this is, you know, to do with apostolic grace, but, but all this understanding I have of the heavenly realms and of spiritual warfare and, and a whole lot of stuff, I'll have to write books. But it's boring writing books, you know? I never, I never wanted to write a book. You know, sitting at a desk all day long, staring at a wall. You know, now you want to be out, you know, on the tractor, down the farm, or in town with people, coffee, you know. You'd rather go pray for people than write a book. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I get books written as to chain myself to my desk and, and tell me you're going nowhere till you write the last word in that book. And so I sit there day after day till it's done. And uh, anyway, I'll have to improve. <laughs> so where was I? What I was telling you was, I was converted up the road, and it was 1967, and the very next thing that happened, in fact, it happened, I got converted one night, and the next morning the Six-Day War broke out. So you've heard of that theory that, you know, when a butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil, there's a, there's a tornado in the Philippines. You think, well, could that have happened? You know? <laughs> that, uh, no, I don't suppose. <laughs> but that was the church world I was born into, and we were being told in those days, by Baptists nonetheless, who, who should know better theologically. Um, and Methodists, these were the kind of people I was born again amongst, that the world, that Christ would be back within five years, or ten at the most, the world cannot possibly last any longer. Now here we are 52 years later, <laughs> and, and I have to say to you, forget the idea that the rapture could come tonight. He's not coming tonight. And if you want to discuss it, we'll, tomorrow morning we'll have coffee, and... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. The, the more I've had this information given to me by the Lord, the more it is clear there's a huge job to be done on earth. What the, the Lord's plans for the church on earth is enormous. And you might, you'd be better off thinking in terms of 40,000 years than 40 years, honestly. I mean, yeah, we don't know, but honestly, there's a huge task ahead one for the maturing of the church, for bringing the church into all the Lord intends, and then for the giving of that church great grace and power amongst the nations. Right. And my Bible tells me we're still here to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, thy kingdom come. And we're still here to do what Hebrews 11 tells us to do, by faith they conquered nations. Mm -hmm. So quit thinking, rapture tonight and great tribulation begins next week. It's a false theory, it's a fairy tale. We have got a job to do, so it's better off you take a hold of the scripture that says a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children, children, plan to live a full life, plan to raise your kids for the glory of God, plan to raise your grandkids for the glory of God, and start thinking again about building Christian schools, Christian universities, and bringing nations to Christ and the gospel prevailing. Because if the Lord does happen to turn up tomorrow or the next day and you're doing that, guess what? 
you fulfilled the scripture where he said, will I find faith on the earth when I come? That's a whole lot better than sitting around saying his rapture is coming any day so, and the gospel will fail, so we better huddle up here. That's what they're doing in Thessalonians and Jesus, uh, Paul rebuked them. So no, no, back to the gospel, right? Back to the power of grace unto the salvation for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile alike. Anyway, with that little introduction, all I've been, all I'm trying to say was I've been a Christian a long time, 52 years now, and, uh, and growing. And, uh, and, uh, and the old timers, they used to say, oh, I've been in Pentecost 30 years. Well, I've been in Pentecost now 45 or 46 <laughs> years, but I've never been in a Pentecostal denomination. Grew up in the Salvation Army. I was then a Salvation Army officer. And then, after the Salvation Army sent me to Rockhampton in the year 1966, uh, 86, I turned up there. A local church asked me if I would become their pastor. At the time, it was a Baptist church. And I became their pastor and thus began a whole new adventure. And I've been there ever since. And uh, so that's Peace Christian Church in Rocky. And so I've been there now in the church 31 years. Been in Rockhampton 33 years. Basically, I've lived my whole life in the backside of the desert, you know, like uh, born in Tari, half my growing up in Coffs Harbour, um, I was in the Salvation Army, and the Salvation Army was a very closed world in those days. You never heard a speaker except it was a Salvation Army speaker. You had big missions and you had a big gospel, but it was all within your own outfit. And uh, so then I lived in Papua New Guinea five years, and then in Rockhampton, and um, you know, Rockhampton's a little bit off the beaten track, right? Yeah. You've... you've Generally, you've got to want to go there to go there. And, and yet, because of our prayers, we've washed that city with prayer now well over 30 years. The city's changed, transforming. It, it once was a heavy, very oppressive city and grey and drab and run down and nobody ever stayed. They'd, they'd stay the night because it's a day's drive from Brisbane, but you're always going to Townsville or Cairns, another day's drive. It'd stay the night and go on, but today it's different. City beautiful, beautiful buildings, parks, flowers, gardens everywhere. And there's a totally different feel. And uh, that has all come from prayer and none of that was really my story for today except to say that I got put in a city that was very dark, had really heavy oppression sitting over it. And I'd prayed for years for the Lord to put me into the ministry he wanted me to have. I always felt there was something else. What is it? Something else. And, uh, and finally... He said to me, when I was leaving Papua New Guinea, two years from now, you will be in the new ministry. And two years now, he dropped me into a Baptist church. And uh, it, it's no longer a Baptist church because the Lord said to us after 12 years, and the funny thing, it came from the congregation, didn't come from me. I was just thinking, no, we're very happy. It was the congregation who drove it, the, the Lord saying he wanted us out of the denominational system to operate internationally. And so wherever we went, we represent Christ and uh, uh, and I didn't realize this was all part of the nature of what we had to do as an apostolic people, but um, I kind of said all that to say this. Um, the, the stuff I have, I got from no man. It was the Lord who brought me into a baptism of the Spirit that was so thoroughly Pentecostal and so thoroughly biblical, but I didn't know anything at all. I knew nothing about the faith movement. I knew nothing about the prayer movement. I knew nothing about the Pentecostal movement. I knew nothing about the charismatic movement. But the Lord took us into all of that and highly educated us in all the things that they had discovered. And in a very short space of time, I had my whole church in faith and we were seeing the most astounding miracles. Spirit of God come in, glue people to the floor. 
And so we were getting the Toronto Blessing when we didn't even know there was a Toronto Blessing. We were up waving big banners when we didn't even know what everybody else in the world was doing that. And of course, you, you, you leave it behind because the, the Spirit of the Lord moves you on. You, you never keep doing the same thing. It's always fresh. So, you know, we were a completely original crowd. And uh, in fact, Phil Pringle came to visit us, I guess at my invitation, way back in about 92, 93. And he was so totally astounded to find this isolated group in the bush that had no contact with anything or anybody, and yet the Lord was doing this huge and fast work with us. <laughs> and so, uh, in fact, I've only seen Phil Pringle once since then. But um, anyway, th- look, this is just background. Here's what I wanted to say. In 1989, one year after I came into that new church, the Lord one day sent a prophet to me to say, John, you're not a pastor, you're an apostle. But again, um, like when I was given authority over demons, but I didn't even know demons existed, we, we didn't believe in apostles. And you'd be a fool to say you were one. You'd be, you know, that's... And yet it seemed to have this ring of truth, and so I just began to seek the Lord. You know, are you talking about apostles? Are you restoring them, or, or can we have them? I began to search the scriptures, and to wait on the Lord and listen, and he began to show me all kinds of things. And I began to teach it in my own church, but never tell them, never tell them. I, was, I thought it might have been in the picture. And I was just talking about what the Lord was doing in the world, in the world today. God is doing this, God is doing that, you know. So our church always had kind of the big picture of, uh, of the thing. And um, so I taught this growing revelation. I knew nobody else in the world who was teaching it. I, I didn't know a soul in the world who, who thought they were an apostle or anyone who even believed they were apostles. And I can say to you in absolute truth, and by the way, these books, all four books are based on revelation I got from the Lord. In fact, everything in them is revelation. That's, where, that's how it began. And I got it from no man. And I got it from no book. And in that whole period, the Lord would not allow me to read any book on the subject. And I knew books were being written on the subject by the mid-90s. But my sense of it was they're premature and they're full of cultural assumptions about what the apostolic is. In other words, it's half wrong. So I, I never even looked into this day. I haven't read them. And uh, so, you know, I, I got this word from no man. And yet I've preached it all over the world, all the continents in the world pretty much, and, um, and sent teams to 40 nations teaching this. And, and we've never had anyone stand up in a meeting and say, this is wrong, this is error. Or, or, um, and it's amazing how I can go places where the doctrine is reformed, but at places where it's Presbyterian, Methodist, Church of Ireland, and, and pastors will agree and, and find it so full of grace. And um, I just thank the Lord for all of that. I've, I've had a bit of a dream run, really, uh, at, at the whole while that have been so opposed in the spirit realm. And um, so it began in 1989, and, and really here's where I wanted to get to. When this first began, I thought it was just about the restoration of apostles to the church. And they were my early questions. What would it mean then? for someone to be an apostle, and what's an apostle like? What, what, what's their nature like? What's their character? What, what kind of authority do they have and not have? And how would the church have to change to fit them back in? And lots of questions, and he would answer these. And, and, and a fair bit of this first book is all about that. And 
Yet five or six years down the track, so this is about 95, 96, all of a sudden one day, the ground I was standing on, having taught all that thoroughly, and not only here in Australia, but through the Philippines and, and into Malaysia and Singapore a bit, and um, all of a sudden the ground shifted. I just suddenly knew I was standing on different ground, but it was with this realisation that this whole thing is much, much bigger, like much, much bigger than simply the restoration of apostles, as, as dynamic a thing as that is. I realised this is actually about the total uh, restructuring of the whole church in the whole world. That this is about transforming the whole of Christianity from whatever it's been into an apostolic form of Christianity. The buzz phrase was that all of God's people would become an apostolic people. My problem was I, I didn't know what that was. And it and I, couldn't, I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get a handle on it. What does it mean for the whole church to be an apostolic people? It, it seemed easy to get a hold of what's an apostle because the, the New Testament was full of information. I mean, full of it. Because we'd never looked for it before, you know, you read through and you just read through those scriptures, don't take any notice. When you come across scriptures like God has appointed first in the church apostles, you take no notice. You just assume, oh, that's Peter and Paul. You read... Uh, Apostles and prophets, the foundation of the church. You just assume, oh yeah, well there were prophets back then, apostles then, and that's that, you know, and you, you shift on. Yeah, yeah. But when you're looking for, when you've actually got a question and a possibility, and, and you look at all those scriptures again and a host of others, you realise it all connects and there's a huge picture. So that was easy enough. Every time I'd seek the Lord, and not only that, he kept, he kept dropping information into me that I wasn't looking for. And, and the one that I remember the clearest, I mean, it's all in the book, but, but the one that I really remember this happening was I was fast asleep in West Fairview, which is a part of Quezon City, which is a part of Metro Manila. You know, it's not a huge place. I'm fast asleep a, in a house, and at 3 a.m. he wakes me up, and he says this simple thing, but it was so contrary to everything we'd thought before. He said the hallmark of an apostle is gentleness. See, some people don't like the thought. But, uh, yeah, because, you know, you know, all we've ever heard in denominational Christianity is that uh, the apostolic thing is all about power and signs and wonders. So you think if you've got an apostle, you've got a miracle worker, you know? And, uh, but he said the hallmark. And, of course, we always had this scripture where Paul himself wrote, the, the, things, the things that mark an apostle are you know, signs and wonders. Well, that seems like a contradiction. Until you take a close look at what hallmark means, not just the things that mark, and you take a close look at the context of Paul's statement and realise, friends, we're talking about two entirely different things. Paul was talking about the kind of heart that an apostle has is they will work very hard to bring about the impact of the power of God into people's circumstances. In other words, they work hard to serve the church with answers to prayer and signs and wonders and whatnot as, as needed. Signs are not automatic, by the way. There were times that Jesus just refused to give them. The only sign we given to this generation is the sign of Jonah, you know, that kind of stuff, you know. Besides, Jesus says, false prophets work lying signs and wonders. 
So don't ever again trot out signs and wonders as the proof that somebody's an apostle is not true. They will do it because their nature is we're going to work hard for the church. But it's not a proof that someone is. Jesus said the proof that someone is is the gentleness. So what's a hallmark? I've got one on the inside of this ring here. This is, I've had this ring, I've been married since 1971, so it's a while now, 48 years. That mark is still there. It is so deeply impregnated on the inside of the ring. It actually says HM for hallmark and then 1HCT, 18 carat. A hallmark is a, is a stamp, deeply, deeply stamped into the gold that testifies to the fact that this is the real McCoy, this is the genuine article, this really is gold. And what the Lord was saying is that when he raises an apostle, a real apostle, not a toy one, we've got plenty of toy ones around, now a real apostle, the thing he takes a lot of time to do is to stamp deeply into the character of that apostle the gentleness of Christ. That's the real evidence. This is the, this is the fruit, you know. Now, it, as soon as you want to test that idea and say, okay, let's go to the Bible, guess what you start finding? Jesus calls his 12 and says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle. Oh, and then the further you go in the New Testament, the more it crops up. Paul writes, let your gentleness be evident to all. He writes to Timothy, gives him a list of things that as a good soldier he must pursue. And very early on the list is gentleness. No, it's huge. But see, we never saw it because we, we, we didn't tie it together. And for me, it took revelation. Day after day, night after night, like water dripping on a stone, built up all this information. It, it, and then one day, in 1997, Christ appeared to me in my room. Woke one morning, Christ standing right here. And uh, he said, he gave me several commands, but the first of these was, go to the nations with an apostolic message. And he had other things to say, and then he was gone. The last thing he said, but it felt like he said it first, was keep looking into the eyes of Jesus Christ. And he was gone. Well, I fell on my knees, you know, cried out to God, Lord, help me, you know. And then, once I'd prayed some prayers, I think he, he didn't tell me what the message was. <laughs> you know, like he said, he said, go to the nations with an apostolic message. Well, what can you do? I'd already been traveling to nations a lot, I'd already been teaching this revelation, and then, and I was scheduled to go to the Philippines two weeks later, so I thought, well, what can you do? Just got to go out and preach some more. But the very next time I preached in the Philippines, this thing just opened up. And, and it became too big, like you just can't preach it. You've got to write it down. So it's chain yourself to the desk, you know, <laughs> get it on paper. Uh, so look, all that in some ways is background. I've got to watch the clock here, because th there is something I'm trying to, I'm going to try and explain to you today. And, and really what I'm trying to explain ultimately, and th which is why you need the background, is I want to explain where this is going to end up. So uh, the next thing along for me was this question of what does it mean to be an apostolic people? This was around 95, 96. And I began to seek the Lord and you'd pray and ask the Lord the question. You, there was a whole bunch of questions, but the primary question was this one, what does it mean to be an apostolic people? And I'd be looking through the Bible and I couldn't find an answer. There didn't seem to be anything that spoke to the subject that I could see. And, and you'd pray and you'd, you'd, you'd look into the spirit realm, looking, expecting to see something. or you, 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 No, there's nothing to see. There's nothing here. Like heaven, heaven's silent. But uh, in months of prayer, and then I started to hear 
these little words whispered. But it was like, I'm, I'm expecting to hear something properly or see something, but nothing, still nothing, but I'd hear this little word, this, this one word would be dropped into my thought at the back here somewhere. And I didn't think it was the answer to the question, but I wrote it down. And next time I prayed to be another word, I wrote it down. And I just thought this was extra information. Until one day, <laughs> when I had a list of them, I realized this is, the, this is the substance of it. And the reason I was not able to get an answer up front, so to speak, was I was looking for the wrong thing. My, my mind was focused on hearing or seeing a different kind of answer. So he blanked it off and dropped some things in back here. Because I was still looking for this power answer. What does it mean to be an apostolic people? You're still thinking, well, what's the key that turns everybody on to being a miracle worker? Whereas he was, to build the apostolic properly, you can't build it on externals, you can't build it on ambition, you can't build it on just gifts, you can't build it on, you know, this is what we want to achieve. It will go completely awry if it hasn't gone already awry in the more, you know, successful centers of Christianity. What he was trying to do was to build this thing from the heart. The spirit of the person has to be right. The spirit of the church has to be right or it is not apostolic. It's like he, when he said false prophets work lying signs and wonders. No, they're people who can run with some kind of power key but, but they're not even Christian. Or, or if they're Christian, they're, they're so far into left field with being off track, they're going to be the ones that hear him say, I never knew you. No, there's, there's something wrong when you try to do the works of God, but you will not do it with, in the way of his spirit or his grace. You're building with wood, hay and stubble and it gets burned up on judgment day. You're not building with gold, silver, precious stones. You find it's all flesh. No, if he's going to build an apostolic people, if he's going to have a real people, what he's actually dealing with is the heart. And if we get the heart right in the building of ourselves together, you will find we will go places in grace and power that we never could have done otherwise will be a people of a different order. So I went back to these things he was saying, of which I now had a list. And uh, this list occurs in both of my first two books. It's the only thing I repeated. The first thing I heard the Lord say in answer to the question, what does it mean to be an apostolic people? He said, submission. But see, submission, that's the hardest word on the list to deal with in public. You know, people have feelings about that. And in some circles, it's a dirty word. Some people have been hurt. Uh, you know, when you think of, um, you know, marriages that have gone wrong and things, you know. And, but by and large, that's because people don't understand what real submission is. And, and in the end, I say to people, look, who was the most powerful man who ever lived? I mean, we all know the answer. You know, the guy who walked on water and rebuked the storm and all the rest, right? Most powerful, most authoritative man who ever lived. Who was the most submitted man who ever lived? Same man. Everything he did, he did as a son to a father. I only do the things that please him. I only say the things I hear my father saying. 
I've not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, that's the grace you have to find or you're never going to be an apostolic Peter. Or as close as we can get to it, you know. (laughs) So, submission, I I say to people, look, submission properly understood is not slavery, it's not control, it's not drudgery, it's not automatic obedience. Rather, submission of the heart simply means the right attitude. What's the right attitude to those who are over you? And that, that's a big one and it's so worth exploring. But he went on to say other things. And, and so what does it mean to be an apostolic people? He said teachable, accountable, um, honesty, openness, transparency, love of the brethren, laying down our lives for the brethren. Now laying down our lives for the brethren for, boast, for most of us doesn't mean martyrdom. For most of us it means serving other people. That's how you lay down your life, right? You, you serve others. You, you, love, you love the service of the saints. And so there were a bunch of things like this, and there's probably a few more in the book. But when I looked at it as a whole, what I realized was it all had to do with our heart attitude within the church and our relationships with one another. In other words, To be an apostolic people must be defined in terms of how our hearts are connected and how we walk together. The oneness of the church. And this then in turn led me to understand, but again by revelation, I didn't cook any of this up on my own. (laughs) It'd be nice about to stand there and say, I thought of this myself. (laughs) No, No, I didn't. He kept dropping it in. So what opened up for me was this whole understanding of sonship father-son relationship in the ministry and it has two applications it has that application where ministers of the gospel but particularly the senior minister in any given church relates to someone and that senior minister whether male or female is to be a son we use the word son rather than you know son or daughter because it we're talking a, a bible dynamic which is described by father and son relationship and i just stick with that language and so every, every person in the ministry is meant to find what it means to be a son, every, that is every pastor, every teacher, but not only that, every apostle. Every apostle should be a son to a father. Every prophet, every evangelist. This is, now, now you don't force this. If it's forced, then it becomes legalistic, it becomes control, it becomes just another religious system for trying to improve the church. It's not that. This is not a system. It's not an administration. It's, it's, a, it's an available grace. I had to say to the pastors on my staff who once I once taught all of this, they thought, well, this is the revelation of God, so everybody needs to do it. And they tried to apply it somewhat, not forcibly, but somewhat emphatically upon our people. When I discovered this, I said, no, you fellas, you know, a bit like, feeling a bit like Jesus who said to his disciples one day, you know, you, you perverse and unbelieving generation, you know, sit them down and say, listen, fellas, it's not like this. Sonship is, can never, ever be obligation. It's opportunity. It is never duty. It is always a grace. It's a grace available. Because if it's not of the heart, it's, it's dead religion and it's bondage. Now, it's, it's, these are, we're talking about heart relationships here. Mm-hmm. Entering into knowing someone better, loving them, standing with them, walking with them, serving them. 
and lifting them up and honouring them and what you find you get in return is you're loved, you're served, you're honoured because these are two-way relationships. And in the end it gets so good, yes, one's, one fulfills the role of father, another fulfills the role of the son, but, but you actually forget all that because you so walk together. You're in it together. Anyway, um, where were we in all of that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it applies to the fivefold ministry. But, but within a church where you've got a ministry team, the, the associate pastors and leaders have to find this relationship of the heart, this spirit of sonship within them to walk with their leader in the church. But that leader, whoever the senior pastor is, has to find that spirit of sonship with someone who's outside the church, someone that they would come to regard as being a spiritual father to them. Look, it gets a bit more complicated because there is spiritual covering and there's spiritual fathering, and they're two entirely different things. They're not the same thing, although blessed are you if you can find it in the same person. And, and that's kind of the norm. You can actually have many fathers, but you can only have one covering. And that's the real person who's over you in the Lord. Someone has to be over you in the Lord. And, and in an apostolic structure, that per, the, the authority over you is, is, is relational of the heart, not institutional. So denominations can't prop... The denominations have tried to provide covering and accountability and, and they've had some success but, but not without, you know, control and measuring up and, and uh, you know, to the point that if someone had weakness, they'd never let on because they're trying to look good because they get promoted and it, it's a totally different dynamic. It doesn't work properly. It's, it's piecemeal. It's hit and miss. And in fact... I was with the Lord one day when he called that kind of covering. Now, it's Christian covering. They're, they're Christian leaders, they're Christian men, but he called it the covering of men. It's a mixture. But when Christ provides spiritual covering of the relational kind, where it begins with apostles and it flows down and it's of the heart, he calls that the covering of Christ. It's a, it's a different dynamic. And we have to find it. And not only, and this is why, but see, I'm saying that no matter how old a ministry is, I'm going to be 67 this month. Uh, my wife is already 67. I married an older woman. She's, she's 20 days older than me and she looks 10 years younger. So I, I, got, a, I got a fairly good deal, you know. <laughs> but I can say I prefer older women, you know. <laughs> but... Uh, here we are at our age, but still very clear about the fact we must walk with fathers. And I intend to do this as long as I can. I mean, if I get to 98 or 105, I might be running out, you know. Uh, I might have to have a 50-year-old father, you know. <laughs> but I know fine well that no matter how old you are, no matter how mature in the ministry, no matter how much you're a father to other people, you need to walk in the spirit of sonship. You need to keep yourself in that place where you always have someone to love, someone to honour and someone to serve. Beautiful. And why should we do this? You know the greatest reason of all is that this is what God does. You know, the, we often think of God as a father who has a son, but biblically it's just as easy to say and just as important to say God is a son who has a father. And so for God to be holy... Uh, I don't have time to flesh all this out for you. I just make the statement. For God to be holy, for God to be a holy God. And by the way, if God was not a holy God, he would not be an eternal God. 
And if God was not a holy God, you could not be saved. Thank you very much. So the fact that that chair under you doesn't disappear into nothingness and you don't disappear into nothingness with it, and the fact that you've got eternal security, the name written above depends on the, the fact that God is a holy God. But for God to be a holy God, he must be three persons. I don't have time to explain why that is so, but if he was two or if he was one, he would not be a holy God and he would not be an eternal God. He must be three persons minimum. And I heard the Lord say one day, the minimum number for holy community is three with one person absent on a trip. So two at home and one away. You still go. I think that's what happened. God the Father, God the Spirit in heaven, Jesus came to earth. Three but one absent. And it's no wonder Jesus said, it's good for you if I go away because otherwise the Holy Spirit could not come. Very, very interesting that. However, for God to be holy and for God to be eternally perfect, God himself must be a son to a father who loves a father and serves a father and obeys a father and honors a father forever. If God was not a son who obeyed a father, he could not be God. Isn't that astounding? What about you then? Scripture says we are predestined to be conformed to the image. Now, now it doesn't say the image of Christ. It doesn't say the image of God. It doesn't say the picture of perfection. It doesn't say any of those things. It says you can predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Sonship. And there's a host of other Bible reasons why you can present the spirit of sonship as actually being real Christianity. You can also argue it as this is the way you walk with a spiritual leader. To understand what was the heart of Jesus in walking with the Father, that's the heart every Christian's meant to have. And you'll find the scripture says we do not know what we will be, but we do know that when he appears we will be like him. So here, here it is. You know, it's got to be the big center of our understanding of what Christianity is all about. So all I'm saying is, it doesn't matter how old you get, I think seek to keep the spirit of sonship in your heart, walk in it, honoring towards other people, and so on, but especially someone over you that you love and trust and walk with and you get their blessing. Even if you don't need the blessing, even if you don't need accountability, even if you don't need someone to give you a fatherly wisdom or provide you a bit of protection, even when you've got to the point you don't need any of that, you still need to love and, and to serve and to honor. And I do that to this day. Walk with the Father. And when you do, you get a bigger inheritance because it's sons who inherit. Mm-hmm. Now, orphans don't inherit. Consequently, I've been brought into bigger things. When you're, when you're an orphan or you know, just don't have fathering in your life, in the ministry, oh, you can grow, you can improve your position, but you're operating by the laws of the harvest. You know, if you sow, you'll reap. So if you pray, you get answers to prayer, you prophesy, you get outcomes, you know, believe God that things will change. Oh, sure, the, the laws of the harvest. But when you step into sonship, the laws of inheritance cut in. So then you start to get things you didn't pray for, didn't believe for, didn't work for. That's pretty good. You might as well get them both. <laughs> anyway, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I'm still trying to tell you where it's all going. <clears throat> but but the, the spirit of sonship, critically important. And, and, and all I'm saying is that this is the understanding the Lord brought me into until one day he said to me that 
father-son relationship in the ministry is the wineskin of the church. Now we're talking about the new wineskin. Remember a long time ago Jesus said, can't put the new wine in the old wineskin? Well, the old wineskin was Judaism. And the new wineskin was the body of Christ. So what he was really saying was not that it's the, the 20th century wineskin. No, he was really saying that the original new wineskin he spoke of, which was the body of Christ, the father-son relationship was the structure of it. In other words, it's relational. The real body of Christ that replaced Judaism was a relational body, heart to heart. No wonder, almost use an, an, an Australian expletive there, you know. No, I'll just stick with a good English. No wonder <laughs> that it was Moses and Elijah who appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration why these two out of all the other characters? Why, why wasn't it Abraham and King David the two more obvious ones? Why more obvious? Because Abraham, the father of faith, and it was the promises made to Abraham and the covenant given to Abraham that led to Christ. And David was the man after God's own heart, put on a throne who became the type and the symbol of his mighty son who would be son of David, rule on David's throne. Why not those two on the Mount of Transfiguration if you need two characters from the Old Testament to discuss with Jesus what he is about to accomplish on the cross? Because that's what we're told he did. They did. It wasn't those two. Um, and for that matter, why wasn't it Isaiah, sublime prophet who saw it all and coming and prophesied it all? Why not Jeremiah, you know, poor guy, needed a break for a change, you know? <laughs> Why, why not Daniel, of whom the scripture says repeatedly he's the most esteemed of all men? Would have been, you know, there's only one other person spoken like that of in scripture, it was Mary. It wasn't the most esteemed of all, but what was said multiple times of Daniel was also used as an expression towards her by the angel. So you can forgive Catholics for getting that a little bit, you know, <laughs> over-ramped up. But um, uh, why these other two characters? Because they were the two, as far as I know, the only two, whose structure in ministry prefigured the body of Christ to come. Father-son relationship. Elijah and Elisha, Moses and Joshua, they raised a son who carried their own authority, their own grace in the ministry, multi-generational Christianity, let's say. When you come to the New Testament, then... Once Jesus, the great hero of the faith, pays the price, completes the work, he leaves 12 sons, but he raises another, Paul, and Paul is actually our teacher. Paul, Jesus, the hero of the faith, but Paul, the great intellectual who explains Jesus to us, explains the cross to us. So we needed that, and Paul modeled it, because Paul, who's childless, as far as we know, raises sons. Timothy, my dear son. <laughs> Titus, my dear son. And then he says of Timothy, I long to see you again. You know, he, he, he turns up someplace and there was a huge opportunity, but he didn't stay there because Titus wasn't there. Looking for Titus. That's the real faith. And 
and being well able to weep. You have such a, a heart, you know. I heard, um, I heard the Lord say, I was in Toronto getting ready to preach one afternoon, a Tuesday afternoon, and uh, the Lord took me to Psalm 78, I think it was, where it said he set aside Ephraim, who had proven to be a faulty bow, and he chose Judah, and from Judah he raised a man after his own heart and made him the leader of God's people, and he would shepherd them with integrity of heart, it said. And I heard the Lord say, I'm going to set aside the existing leadership of the church and raise another leadership. Now, I don't think this meant he was going to sack all the pastors he had. No, I think he was, what he meant was he was going to completely change the leadership, the way leadership was structured in the church. So everybody would think differently, feel differently, see differently. And yes, the, the really senior, serious leadership would change because it was going to change from administrators and teachers to apostles and prophets. But my spiritual father, who was Chuck Clayton at the time, is now dead, gone to heaven. Uh, he heard the Lord say, he was driving along one day, and he heard the Lord say, I'm going to raise a new leadership for the body of Christ, and this one will have a heart. So you get he's talking the same change. And, and blessed are you if you're hungry enough to pursue that heart, because it'll be you. You know, a whole, a whole new spirit in leadership is what it amounts to. But it takes the spirit of sonship to do that. In other words, it, uh, now, now this, by the way, also has an application in congregations. And when I'm teaching in churches, I explain how to apply it there. Again, no obligation. It's opportunity. But every member of the church is meant to find this grace to walk as sons in the house. And, and what I was going to say about it is this. <clears throat> I think the, the spirit of sonship or having this kind of heart is actually the, the core of what the apostolic's all about. Because remember I was asking the question, what does it mean to be an apostolic people? And I came to say, it has to be defined in terms of our relationships. If you have that right, you have apostolic Christianity. And if you don't, I don't care how many churches you plant and how many dead people you raise, you're not apostolic. And so the, the spirit of sonship, but of course it, uh, oh well, I wrote books too. That was my first book, as he said, Apostolic Revelation. That's the result of 13 years of searching the mind of the spirit. And when I was writing that, the Lord said, after this there'll be a second level of revelation and then a third. And, and yes, I went on to write the book, The Spirit of Sonship. I didn't think I could write the book. I mean, this, this, this word, this message, the, the, I knew it as, as something so beautiful, so far-reaching uh, that you, you could preach it with some passion, but I didn't think it was possible to write. Um, I didn't think I was capable of writing a book on the subject. Nothing like what I saw, but, and so I put off writing it for some years, and in the end I thought, well, I'll never be able to write the book that I think it, the subject deserves. I'll just have to write something. So I sat down. But the Spirit of God must have got on it because I wrote that book in 16 days, 100,000 word book, and it's the one that's kind of gone places, you know. So anyway, maybe the Lord wrote the book. And then when I wrote that book, I knew there was another dynamic. I knew there was another side to the coin, but I didn't want to put it in the same book because I thought it would get lost. And, and that was this one called Holy Community originally, but in this version called Building an Apostolic People. I think we only have two copies left in captivity of uh, Holy Community at Home. 
and I've only got about 10 of these, of which I brought five or six. Uh, these are the ones I printed in South Africa. So there's a, there's a thousand of them still over there, but they're not here. I'm about to republish these books because they're just about out. In fact, I've only got 10 or a dozen of these left, of which I brought, you know, a handful here. Um, but in a nutshell, this book, Holy Community, Spirit of Sonship is about how your heart with your leader or your heart with the person over you in the Lord and their heart with you, you become one. And you walk together or you begin to learn to walk together. It's a process. It takes time. But you come to the place where, like the prayer of Jesus, Father, make them one as you, as you and I are one. The Father, Son, see, right there. As you and I are one. Bring them to complete unity. And you're supposed to find that heart relationship with someone over you in the Lord. And which I did with Chuck, which is wonderful. And now walking with George Johnson in Vancouver. Um, but I knew there was another dynamic. Well, I didn't know there was another dynamic. The Holy Spirit rubbed our nose in it. That, that after we had this taught in the church and the Spirit of God came upon our church and changed everybody's heart, so they related to their leaders in a whole new way. And I related to Chuck in a whole new way. Just the work of the Spirit was astounding. But it came after years of teaching. A few months later, the Spirit of God came on our church and linked the hearts of all the people together. But it only happened because one day the Lord told me there was an anointing for that. And see, we'd been trying to bring that about for years, taught, 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 and it never happened. But he said to me, there's an anointing. Oh, I thought, there's an anointing. So the next Sunday I released, prayed that anointing on the church, it just changed everything. But that's a different story, and I'll talk about that tomorrow morning, except half you won't be here. But there is a book. That's the thing that Phil gets high on. And, and, and to me, this is, the hidden, this is the hidden secret. And I've been places where I've released that grace over churches and later on the pastors will say, ever since that prayer, our church has been totally different. And uh, so, but I don't have time. Now look, look we're, um, mm, I've I, I got to get to this final point and then we quit, right? I, I can leave it if you wish. What I've tried to emphasize here so far is the importance of sonship, the importance of relationships, and the idea that without relationships you don't have the apostolic. Don't kid yourself. It's not power, it's not gifts, it's not signs and wonders. Relationships determine what the apostolic is. We're meant to walk with each other, we're meant to walk with our leaders, we're meant to be of one heart, of one mind, and then we are a people and if you get that heart right, you are an apostolic people, and it's apostolic grace flowing. And, and once you find that, it's a different kind of church, the atmosphere's different, you're standing in a different place, and you have a lot more power. You'll, you'll punch above your weight. Yeah. Now, having said all that, I just want to have a quick word about where this is going historically. And, and to help with this... Um, I can either go from the back to the front or the front to the back, and I'll try and be real quick about it. Most people are aware, well, a lot of public teachers are aware anyway, that in the last 50 years of the last century, so from 1950 through 1990, there were five 10-year periods in which the Holy Spirit put a great emphasis on each of the fivefold ministries in turn, and the 50s was the evangelist. And huge tent evangelists rose all over the world. The 60s was the role of the pastor. The pastor role shifted from being a, just a chaplain employed to being the real spiritual leader of the church with authority and vision holding. And in the 70s, the emphasis was on the teacher, and great, great teachers arose. Great teachers that went right across the body of Christ, household names, Bob Mumford, Derek Prince, all those kind of guys. Teaching anointings flowed into ministries everywhere. 
they were fantastic days, coincided with the invention of the personal tacit recorder. We used to, and the charismatic meetings in those days were teaching meetings. We used to rock up and all hold our own little microphone and all the tapes would click off after 30 minutes and the preacher would stop and you click, turn the tape, click back on, he'd start again. No, they were heady days, so exciting. You know, th- there was nothing like it. Uh, and then, oh, surprise, surprise, prophets started to arise. But we already knew about those three. No one was surprised, right? All of a sudden, prophets. And so this, there's more resistance in it. No, the gifts have ceased and all of that, you know. But, but no, it came more and more. And then prophets started to say in the late 80s and into the early 90s that, oh, the apostles are coming. Well, they were coming. It was 89, the Lord tapped on my shoulder and said, you're not a pastor. So I, I was in on the ground floor of this, you know. But it was five or six years before I dared talk to my church about whether I was or wasn't and, and discovered when I did that every last one of them believed I was. And this was a Baptist church of all things. And old Baptist deacons and the like all thought I was an apostle. You couldn't believe that, you know. Had to be the Lord. Well... Um, th- th- anyway, it was only these 50 years. And so the consequence of that is a lot of people preach and say, oh, it was the restoration of the fivefold ministry. Ah, I'm going to differ a little bit. I'm going to say what was restored were, was the fivefold ministry was restored partially. And in the case of apostles, the, the uh, apostolic authority was not restored and has not been restored. Not not much. What was restored to us was a doctrine that what I call the notion of apostles, the idea of apostles. Church still exploring it. You, the Lord, this thing, let me tell you, the, the apostle thing is so huge, the grace of it, so all-encompassing, it can't just be dropped into the church. And it's a process of a hundred years at least. The church has to change and the people who think they are apostles, well, perhaps they won't change, but the ones who are really called to be apostles, whether now or tomorrow, they have to change. The whole thing is completely different to anything that we knew of in denominational Christianity. And, and principally, everybody's heart, the heart of everybody in the church and the heart of anyone called to be apostles or prophets has got to go down to another place. Another level of humility and submission and teachableness all together. Everybody has to demote themselves at least one step on the, on the ladder of which you think you're standing on. <laughs> because we have to find a real grace. And um, however, apostles are being restored, but this is a longer process. Now, it, it was often thought, and I can, I, can, I can pull out a textbook, it's not here, it's at home, a whopping big textbook written in the 1980s, that studied the 2,000 years of the church and showed you the decline of the church all the way down to the time of the Reformation, all the doctrines that were lost, and and then from the time of the Reformation, all the doctrines that were restored. And it's got a time chart in the book, and here's the time chart, and it shows evangelists restored, pastors restored, teachers restored, and it was written about 1980. And the timeline looks into the future and says, ah, what's now coming will be restoration of prophets, restoration of apostles, and then on the timeline of the year 2000 is a cross, return of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Not so fast. (laughs) So, so, no, he didn't come then and he's not coming yet. There's a huge job to be done. Ask yourself, 
See, the, the, that assumption was made because the first thing lost in the church was apostles. So the idea was, oh, apostles will be the last thing restored, and then Jesus can come. No, no. If, if apostles are restored, there's a reason. So apostles have a job. And uh, in fact, when the church had apostles 2,000 years ago, those apostles were saying to the church, you've got to go on to maturity. And Paul, the great apostle, wrote and said, Christ is appointing apostles and prophets, evangelists, teachers, to work with the church until, he said, until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, measuring up to the fullness of the measure of the statue of Christ. So therefore, this measuring up of the fullness of the measure of the statue of Christ is something that happens on earth under the leadership of apostles, prophets, etc. So in other words, long before Jesus comes, and this is why you got that word until then. In other words, because it actually says when Christ ascended. So the picture is Jesus is ruling from heaven, appointing leaders on the earth until. In other words, no second coming until. So we're going to be here a while. And apostles being restored is a very important part. So in a summary, here's where we're going. As we see genuine apostolic authority restored, apostles will lift up the fivefold ministry. They'll lift up prophets. They'll lift up teachers, lift up pastors. And the spirit of sonship has got to be in this. So these apostles are are lifting up sons, but those sons becoming great fathers, great mothers. Why? Because the fivefold ministry as a whole brought into its maturity and with its authority re-established is then got a work to do to lift up the whole church. Spirit of sonship in the church, relationships in the church, lift this whole church up. Why? Here's the end game. It's this maturity thing. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unity of the knowledge, and become mature. And how does he describe it? Measuring up to the fullness of the measure of the statue of Christ. And that idea gets repeated in the Bible. But Paul is describing the future. But if you go back a chapter in his prayer, when he describes what he's actually praying for the church, he says, as soon as I heard about your love for all the saints, I've not quit praying for you that and he's got a list of things. And if you, if you look at it, this is a ladder of, of experience of God where he, he prays you into ever-increasing levels of revelation until, and so you're supposed to grasp the inheritance of Christ in the saints, grasp the power of his resurrection to us who believe. You're meant to be fully endowed with the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of Christ. And he prays you up these levels until you... You come to a place where you're given the power to grasp, but listen carefully to the, the little note he adds in. Given power together with all the saints. So you can't go this place unless you're one people in the heart. Given power together with all the saints to grasp. So this is, so this is power to see, power to understand, or power to apprehend. The width and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ until, he says, you find a love that passes understanding and so come to the fullness of God. Now, he calls it the fullness of God there, but a chapter later he calls it the fullness of the measure of Jesus Christ. And it's the same thing, and it's the same thing Jesus prayed about in the garden when he says, 
Father, make them one. As you and I are one, bring them to complete unity. Now, is this in heaven and earth? No, he says, so that the world may believe. So here's my contention in closing. The whole purpose of the restoration of... I actually think the whole 500 years of the Reformation is part and parcel of what we're doing now. You begin with the Reformation, Reformation of Bible doctrine, just to live by faith, and it's progressively added riches and freedoms into the church. Ultimately, you discover the baptism of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. We have better translations of the Bible, better understanding the original languages, you worship being fleshed out. At the same time, you've got a lot of fleshly things going on. But, but your church moving along, and now we're ready for the next big shift. A hundred years ago, it was shift into Pentecostalism and, and this better kind of worship. Now it's being shifted into the apostolic. But one is building on another. So we're being brought into a relational form of Christianity where institutionalism falls off us. But it's, it's to bring us into relationships of the heart by which we are built together in an entirely different way and see the restoration of apostles and prophets as the real foundation of the church. And the whole purpose of that is to bring the church into this maturity. And, and, and here's what perhaps I better say in closing. There is an anointing that gets you into the relationships a better way. Now, the anointing alone doesn't do it. You've got to have teaching. There's got to be instruction, instruction, because you've got to put deep values in the heart, but without power, you can never live according to those values. When you, when you instruct the church properly, they know what they're supposed to believe and how they're supposed to live, but then a grace comes on it. We're talking, I'll tell you what the name of the grace is, that produces both the heart for sonship and the heart for community. It's called the spirit of understanding. And it's one of the seven graces that rested on Christ as described by Isaiah the prophet. You know, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding and so on. Of the seven anointings described by Isaiah on Jesus, and it, by the way, in those, those seven anointings are like a rainbow. It's, it's every color imaginable, but it's described as seven primary colors. You know, you see seven colors, you see a rainbow. But it's actually unlimited, infinite color. So Isaiah describes, calls, calls out seven anointings, but it's describing this infinite grace and glory and power in Christ, every anointing imaginable. But it's one of those things in particular. Now, it does more than just this, but, but it's, it's, a, it's some of that grace that's got to get a lot more on the church than it ever was before, this spirit of understanding that so changes our hearts. See, when you were born again, your heart was changed. That, that means grace was given to you. You couldn't do it yourself, but it was based upon what you heard and believed. So suddenly you had a new value. Oh, grace changed your heart. Then you were taught about the baptism of the Spirit. Oh, something to believe. Grace changed your heart. You didn't do it. Well, there's, there's another grace. It's a corporate one. Corporate grace. So you've got something to believe. Yeah, we're teaching the values of apostolic life. Your heart starts to believe. You pray. A grace is given. That's the power coming on the teaching, on the truth you have, and suddenly the church lives a different life. The same way you start to live a different life when you were born again. So what I'm saying is, the thing we're being led into as a church as a whole is a state of grace. A grace you didn't even know existed. You know, up to now the church has been so individualistic, but we've all pulled against each other. This is a grace that brings us to a place where we pull together, and Here's, here's the point I'm trying to make. You have to have that in place to get a hold of all the other seven anointings that are on the Christ. It's not that we don't have some, 
But wherever the church is divided, it's piecemeal. A bit here, a bit there. So some church has got wonderful worship, another church got wonderful faith for healing, and some other church got more faith in missions. And You know, nobody seems to have it all. You, you try to flesh some of these things out, but the reason it's piecemeal is because the church is divided. For once upon a time, that sevenfold anointing, that full rainbow of all the grace and power of God rested upon one human body. Can you imagine this? John said, I saw the Spirit given without limit. So one human body, the body of Jesus, Paul said, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in him. Get your head around that. But if a human body on earth could carry the fullness of the Spirit of God without limit, listen, that body's not on earth, but the body of Christ is still. Like we are now the body of Christ. Back then the body of Christ was one man. Today the body of Christ is many of us. We have to, here's the point, I think I'm finally at it. We have to be brought into oneness of heart for the Spirit to rest upon the church on earth in an unlimited grace. In other words, the church has to be one man. You know Ephesians 2? He's made of the two, one new man. The, the church has to actually be that one new man, and when we do, all the rich in, in finitude of the power that Jesus had will rest on the body of Christ on earth. I'd, I'd like to get there, wouldn't you? I, I kind of wish I was living 200 years from now, you know? Have been... <laughs> Instead, I got this job, <laughs> trying to explain it. <laughs> uh, anyway, there you go. So I'll answer questions if you wish, or you can, you know, tell me to sit down if you want. <laughs> but I think that that shit said enough. <clears throat> uh, yes, yes, I will. I will pray that right here and now. And and when I teach about holy community, which I want to do here tomorrow, unless the the Lord switches me on something else. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I will release that anointing over this church too. Uh, the, the Spirit of Understanding does a number of things and mostly before I preach, doesn't matter where I am in the world, I'll take a moment to pray a little prayer and take a hold of the Spirit of Understanding and bring it down and release it over the hearts and minds of people present. And it's amazing the depth of of understanding that it's a whole lot easier to preach when you do that. People seem to get it. I didn't feel it was necessary for me to pray that public prayer here today, but I didn't pray it quietly in my chair. But, but it, it's full of version is um, when I teach about community, you know, the heart of people for one another in a church, and I release that anointing, yet it, it changes the hearts somehow, in all invisibly. It, it, People see each other differently. A lot of the spirit of competition and striving goes out of their hearts. It, it's quite astounding. In other words, it does something in the human heart that conversion as understood by the Baptists and baptism in the spirit as understood by the Pentecostals doesn't do, usually. Because we preach those things individually, as, indi as individual works. And we don't take the competition out of people. But this grace, it's, a, it's Pentecost, by the way. It's a fuller version of the baptism of the spirit. That, that deals with that spirit of competition, striving to see people. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I'll pray the prayer before I quit. Mm. Can, I, can, I, can I just, maybe, because uh, it's three o'clock, and I know some of you have got to go and vote still, um, 
it would be great, John, if you could honour us uh, by praying and then um, we bless you and release you and thank you. But maybe would you be okay to hang around just for a little yes, bit? Yes. And uh, if there are some questions and, and you want to do that, we just want to make sure that um, uh, we get, get everyone out and honour the time. So would you, would you mind yep. just... <coughs> why don't we stand? Thank you. By the way, John, so much. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. <coughs> All right. The, the Holy Spirit is present and there's an anointing over the whole gathering. It's like a group anointing. Mm. And what you need to do now is simply rest. That, that is within yourself. Be completely at rest. No striving. Uh, but no passivity either. You, you, your heart is to just look to the Lord and be believed. Believe. Basically drink, drink, I'll pray and release the grace and your heart simply, don't pray, but but just receive it. Mm. And um, that's how anointings are best received, when you're resting. And and Father, I thank you for this meeting today and the gathering of hearts. And I thank you that you have been present and that by the Holy Spirit, you've made things clear to us and I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for what you're doing on the Central Coast. And I thank you for the, the plan of Christ in, in summing all things up in yourself. You are bringing your people together heart to heart on the Central Coast. And I bless it. I bless the city. I bless the region in Jesus' name. Pray for the great furtherance of that work and ask that you would remove every hindrance and resolve, O oh Lord, every matter that would throw up a roadblock, throw up a highway for our God. I pray, fill every valley and level every mountain, a highway for our God. Thank you. Grace will flow to this Central Coast region. I bless the region in Jesus' name. And knit the hearts of your ministers together, I pray. And I thank you that here this afternoon there is for your people an impartation of grace. And I receive it from your hand. Lord, thank you. I, I receive from Christ, from the throne of Christ today, the spirit of understanding. And in the name of the Lord Jesus, I bring that anointing down upon this gathering. And I place the spirit of understanding upon the heart and the mind of every person here. And I say grace to you and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus. I place the spirit of understanding upon you and in Jesus' name I release it to them. Thank you, Lord. Flood their homes and their hearts, flood their ministries, their churches with this great grace, the spirit, the anointing by which community is built. I place it upon them today and release it to them in Jesus' name. And thank you, Lord. Your purpose will be accomplished. In this coast, we praise God. We hope you enjoyed listening to this message. For more information on what you've just heard or how to visit us, go to c3talgra.org.au. We hope to see you at church soon.